we're just walking, and all of a sudden, a guy chucks a mayonnaise packet at us. I didn't see it, but it happened. And at the same time, a different guy, they're not even together, looks at us and like, what's up, man? What's up? Like we were trying to fight them, and it was crazy. And the the sad reality, I think, of the whole situation is that as you walk around downtown Portland, it didn't feel that abnormal, you know? It was like, this is just life in Portland in certain parts, and this is what it looks like. Uh, and and it, it offers it offered us uh, uh, just a quick, brief, easy reminder. Um, that's by the way, uh, not how I got this black eye. If you can see my black eye from where you're sitting, I don't want you sitting there thinking, does he have a black eye or does he have eyeshadow on the whole time? Uh, do you have a black eye? It was from an elbow playing basketball. Side note. Um, and, and so it just offered this quick reminder about how ugly the world can be. And I was processing this. Last week, uh, just our world, the world in which we live, and we know this. I'm not, this is not new information. This is just something I want to set the kind of the, uh, the foundation for the whole sermon series we're starting today. We know that we live in a world that is full of evil. It's dark and it's ugly. Uh, it's like this. I was thinking about this. I'm pretty sure we're still at war, But war has become so commonplace that we've almost forgotten that we're in it, right? Like we are still actively in war. I don't remember an end to the Iraqi war. We're still at war. And yet we don't talk about it or think about it because it's become so normal to us. Because the world is so ugly that it's like, yeah, that of course we're at war. We're always at war. I mean, there will be another one in a minute if we stop this war. Uh, How about this? Uh, Something that we take time to pray for far too often in our church, mass shootings. Mass shootings happen all the time. Like some become famous because a few more people are killed or they hit closer to home or they're in places that make it more staggering, stand out like it happens in a church or at a school, then we pay more attention. But there are mass shootings all the time, all, all the time. And it reminds us, it shows us that the world is ugly. I just looked on the internet uh, the other day and uh, I just kind of wanted to, I looked up killing in the, uh, in the news feed because death reminds us and killing reminds us of how ugly the world is. And I got this, a man charged with abducting and killing a girl. It was like the first thing, who was 11 years old, 11 years old. I saw this. A 16-year-old girl was burned alive for helping a couple elope. That's crazy, right? I, I, I had a friend who ran into Caitlyn Jenner uh, the other day, and he took a picture of her in the airport. He said, nothing political. He said, I quote, I don't know how I feel about this, but I ran into Caitlyn Jenner in the airport, posted the picture. And I read through the comments, which were far more interesting than the picture, and the amount of hate was incredible. Hate towards Caitlyn Jenner, hate towards him for saying he didn't know how he felt, although he gave no explanation for what he meant by that. Hate towards him for being a a bigot or for being hateful himself, although he hadn't said anything that, that seemed hateful. I mean, just one person after another, based on a picture, were just ripping each other apart. And it's like, what is happening? Our world has become a, a really ugly place. I thought about this name this week as I was thinking about our world, Donald Trump. 
And, and I, I know as I say his name, then one of two things come into your head. Like either you hate his guts and you've probably said a bunch of mean things about a guy that is a human being. I would like to point that out. Uh, or or you, you've already thought like, what about all the hate that's coming towards him and you're reacting to the hate that comes towards him and you hate people that hate him. And, and, and just when you say his name, uh, for whatever reason, all of a sudden you can just see the ugliness of our world just rise up and people start getting all kinds of angry at each other. And it reminds us of how ugly the world is. So we know that, right? We can agree. The world's a pretty ugly place and it seems to be, at least in our country, getting more ugly all the time. And, and here's the other thing that I, that I know and you know, and I don't have to talk you into this. At the same time, while the world is getting uglier and, and while it seems like darkness has covered our country... We all want to live beautiful lives. I don't think that there's one of you that are listening to me right now who would say, I want to live average, or I want to live an ugly life, or I want to live poorly, or I don't care how I live, I don't care what I accomplish, none of that. We all have, a, have an innate desire to live beautifully. And, and by beautifully, as we kind of go through this series, uh, let me just give you a few things. And this is not a definition of beautiful. This is just like, what is a beautiful life? What, what does that mean? I was just pondering that. And, uh, and so on the most basic kind of broad, this really doesn't mean anything level. It means that we all want to live well. I mean, don't you just like when you get to the end of your life or, you know, when you get to the end of the week or whatever, go like, I want to, I lived pretty well this week. I lived, I did a pretty good job this week. Um, but even more, like, I think all of us want to live morally right. And, and what you deem morally right might be different than what Christians deem morally right, what God deems morally right. But even if you're, you hate Christianity and you happen to show up here today, you still in you have a desire to live a morally good, morally right life. That's just a part of being a human being, no matter what you deem moral or immoral. We all want to live lives that are respected by other people. Don't we? I mean, nobody goes, I just want everybody to hate me, you know? I mean, we all want uh, respect and we want to have people look at us and go, they do a good job in their lives and I, I wish I could be more like them and I, 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 they're an example that I can follow. We all want that. Um, we all want to live lives that make a difference. Right? I mean, you want to live a life that matters to other people, not just for your own self-satisfaction and happiness. We all want to do things, to accomplish things, to be a part of things that, that actually matter to people that we know and love, but just to the world in general. We all want that. That is something that every one of us wants. And then we all want to have lives that go beyond our lives, don't we? I mean, isn't it kind of, and maybe you gave up this goal a long time ago, but you want to live a life that people are still talking about in a hundred years. You, uh, you want to live a life where at your funeral people go, their leg, and they mean it, they don't just say it because you died, where at your funeral they're like, their life has left a legacy and you can see it in me and you can see it in whatever they were a part of and, and their life has gone beyond their life. We all want that and we want people to mean it when they say it about us. And so there's these, it's just staggering, there's these two kind of polarizing truths that we all know. Our world is downright disgusting and I want to live beautifully. 
And most of the time, what happens is because we're being pulled down by an ugly world and, and we have this dream of living beautifully, we, we end up somewhere kind of in the middle. Like, we just end up kind of living decently, don't we? I mean, we just kind of live decently and then we have a midlife crisis because, you know, we haven't done what we wanted to do and our lives haven't been that important or that valuable or that good or that moral or whatever. And, and then we kind of get over it and say, well, this is just who I am. And, and, and what happens because we, we have this desire to live beautifully, but we see how ugly the world is and, and we're fighting more for survival than beauty. Do you ever feel like that? Like we fight for survival instead of actually living the lives that we really, really want to live. We end up just kind of in the middle and most of us are gonna just be okay fine decent human beings and we'll kind of drift through life without beautiful living but but at least acceptable by most people's standards and the reason that we're doing this sermon series is because I don't want us to live normal I don't want us to live average. I don't want us to fight to keep our heads above water. I think that our ugly, ugly world needs more beautiful people. Our ugly, ugly, dark, sick, disgusting world needs more people who live beautifully if it has a chance to... to change, if it has a chance to become something different, if, if the culture in our country has a chance to change and go the other direction, it will not, and I promise you this, come because of how you vote or don't vote. It's going to, become, it's going to come because people start to live more beautifully and, and it snowballs and more and more people live not just average lives, but beautiful lives and everything changes when that happens. And so over the next 10 weeks, one of the longer sermon series we've done in a very long time. We're gonna look in, in a book called First Peter that's in the Bible. And First Peter is this book that is written to call people to live beautiful lives. It's really what the whole book is about. And what's cool about it is that as it calls us to live beautiful lives, it says things within its confines that if we would just put them into practice, then we can't help but live better than we're already living. We can't help but live in a way that is at least a little bit prettier than the normal lives that we're currently living. We can't help but live in a way that is more excellent than average. And so as we go through these 10 weeks, the goal is to look at what First Peter says and not just go, obviously, you know, this is the goal, but, but not just go, well, that's cool. I mean, I hope somebody does that. But to go, I'm gonna live that way. I don't care how ugly the world is. I want to have a life that matters. I want to have a life that is morally good. I want to have a life that makes a difference. I want to have a life that goes beyond me. And so I'm gonna put into practice these things that Peter has said. Now, here's the really cool part about this book before we look at the first two verses in it. Um, Peter is writing to a group of Christians that are spread out through uh, the entire uh, region of Asia Minor. And he's writing this book with a purpose as every book in the Bible is written. He's writing it with a purpose. And, and here's the purpose, it's really cool. The world in which he lived was ugly. There was persecution against Christians. There uh, were problems, there were fighting. His own people, the Jewish people were, were uh, oppressed by the Roman government. And the government of Rome, if you don't know this, uh, was very godless. They, they uh, 
made it so that you had to worship the emperor and they worshiped false gods and, and they did things that even in today's standards we would, we would call really, really bad. I mean, like pedophilia was just a part of their culture. But what's happening when Peter writes this book is that the world is about to get uglier. There's going to be a couple of Roman emperors, Nero being the most famous, that are going to take what's happening in Rome, this kind of ugly culture that, that Peter lived within, and he's going to magnify it. And it's going to get magnified to the point where Christians are going to be persecuted and killed like they don't matter at all, like they're cattle that's being killed to, to make beef for us to eat, almost literally. Because here, let me just tell you a couple things about Nero, and, and maybe you've heard this before in a history class or something. Nero... Uh, decided that he hated Christians. And so Nero did a couple things with Christians that have withstood kind of history and we still know about them. One is that he lit his gardens by lighting them on fire. Think about that. Another is that he'd have parties within those same gardens while Christians are, are hanging on posts lighting the garden and he would dress in animal skins with claws and he would hunt Christians who were running around and he would maul them to death. And what Peter knows as he launches into this book is that the world is ugly and God knows it's about to get uglier. And there are these people, Christians, who wanted to live beautifully and who were striving to live beautifully. And the question becomes, how do we do it as the world becomes uglier and uglier? If people are kind of on our side, if people kind of like us and they like our moral stances, if they align with our thinking and our beliefs, then it's not that difficult to live beautifully. If everybody's living beautifully, then we all can just live beautifully and it can be happy and it'll be like Pleasantville and everything's okay. But when the world and the culture is ugly, then how do we live beautifully? And that is exactly what Peter is going to say in this book, what God is going to reveal to us through his servant, Peter. And today we're going to lay a foundation. Today we won't get into, here's first thing you do to live beautifully. That'll start next week. But today, Peter in the first two verses gives us this just beautiful foundation for how we must think and who we must be if we are going to actually live a life that stands out in our ugly culture. And he begins this way, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To be an apostle, in the way Peter means apostle here, is to be the mouthpiece of God. And so the early apostles spoke for God and they wrote for God. And so Peter here as he reveals himself as an apostle is, is saying in some way, hey, look, I'm not writing as just a friend. I'm not writing as a pastor. I'm not writing as a family member that loves you. I'm writing to you as somebody who is speaking the word of God. And it reveals to us that in the book of 1 Peter, what we have is God. God's revelation to us saying, hey, 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 you want to live in a way that stands out in the midst of this ugly culture? Here is what, here is what you must do. And then Peter identifies who he's writing to. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The first thing and this is super, super important, that Peter declares is that these people who he's writing to are elect. These Christians are chosen by God. Now, a couple of things that I wanna say right up front. 
First of all, if you're not a Christian, uh, I think you'll find value in this sermon series. I think you should keep coming back because there's great principles for you, even if, if you hate God, uh, then you'll find great principles for living a beautiful life in First Peter. The Bible has withstood the test of time, and people respect it thousands of years after it's been written for a reason, and, and part of the reason is it contains incredible truths. And so even if you hate God, then there's something for you in this sermon series, but the greater truths are held for those who are Christians. And it's in part because Peter reminds us here that all who are Christians are elect. Now this word elect, it contains so much theological drama that, that it, it's hard to remember Peter's actual intent. Uh, I've spent so many bus rides as I was in uh, college studying to be a pastor. Uh, I spent a ton of baseball road trip bus rides arguing about that one word right there, elect, and what it meant. And uh, does that mean God just picks Christians and everybody else is destined to hell? I mean, what does that mean? And, and, and it's just dripping with baggage. You say it in a room of theologians and everybody fights. But, but I'm not going to talk about any of that today because I don't want to, uh, but because of this. Ready? Because it doesn't matter. That's the conclusion I've come to after a lot of eight-hour bus rides arguing over it. Because here is what we know. Anybody who becomes a Christian is chosen by God. It doesn't matter if you think they got there because God chose them before they made a decision or after, however you want to slice those uh, lines, however you want to do that. The reality that Peter is getting to is that if you are a Christian, if you have accepted the gospel story, the story that says that Jesus died on a cross for your sins, he rose again, and if you make him the Lord and Savior of your life, you get to go to heaven, then you are a person who is chosen by God. And that's a big deal. Not because of the theological baggage. It's a big deal because what it means for our lives. Karen Brace, who's right over there, uh, she was adopted and, and she told me that, that as a kid or as a baby, somebody walked in, they looked at a bunch of babies and they picked her. And they didn't pick her because of any reason that she knows of, but they chose her and that's mattered through the years to know that she was chosen and those other suckers were not. You know, I mean, <laughs> she never said it like that, but you know, logical conclusion. Uh, but no, that's the point is look, you've been picked. God looks at you as somebody that he selected if you have placed your faith in him. I've told this story in sermons before. Uh, but I remember in high school, uh, me and my dad discovered a little ventilation in the bathroom uh, and uh, at my high school, and we had, I had just had tryouts, and we went in there to urinate, and uh, what's the most proper way to say pee when you're giving a sermon? I'm not sure, but we went in there to relieve ourselves, um, and... And, we're, and we, had knew this, we had found this vent in there and we could hear the coaches talking about who was making the team. And it was awesome because they didn't say, well, Chad stinks. They said, Chad's clearly on the team. And just to be chosen, you know this, right? Because we all have this in our heads. Like if you've ever had a PE class, you were scared you would be chosen last because that's not being chosen at all. That's being rejected, right? That's like, well, we don't want you, but you're in the class. But to be chosen brings value and worth and meaning and, and something good to our lives, to our souls even. And when Peter says that these people are elect, I don't think he means anything that has theological baggage. He means, look, 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 look. God has chosen you. You've been picked. 
You're on his team. You're part of his family. You've been adopted. You become, as he'll say it later, his holy nation. You become his priesthood. You have become the thing that he values maybe more than anything. And that's important. And one of the great foundations for living a beautiful life, let me just tell you this, this is the reality, is knowing in your soul that you have value enough to be picked. I can tell you, and this is from experiences in my life, that to know that you're loved, that you're cared about, no matter what you do, changes everything about how you're willing to live your life. If you're constantly fighting to be selected, to be chosen, to be in the it crowd, to fit in, to have people like you, to earn somebody's trust and love, then you will never live a life that is beautiful. You will always live a life that is average because average will get you to fit in. But when you know that you've been picked, it frees you up to say, how ought I live, not how do I need to live in order to make myself feel good about myself. And at the very beginning of this book that is about living beautifully, Peter looks at these people that he's writing to. He says to them, hey, here's one of the things that you need to know. You matter to God so much that he picked you to be a part of his nation, his family, his team. You matter to him. And here's a promise I can make to you. You will never live a beautiful life. You will never live a beautiful life. If your whole goal is to fit in, if your whole goal is to have people like you, if your whole goal is to get to selected on a team or in a family or wherever it is, but if you know your worth and your value, if you know that God loves you and has picked you, then you're free to live the way you should live. And you have a fighting chance to live beautifully in an ugly world. This other thing he says is so, so, so important. He says that, that we who are elect are also exiles. Uh, this is a word that can translate aliens. I like to translate it aliens in my head because I picture green Martian men and it makes me laugh a little bit. Uh, but the word is actually the Greek word where we get diaspora, if you've ever heard that term. And diaspora became a technical term in, in Jewish circles for the times in Jewish history where the Jewish people were pulled out of their land, taken to another land, and forced to live there. And so the diaspora was a reference to all these Jewish people who had their own culture, their own language, their own uh, rules and laws, their own mindsets, their own history. They had all of that stuff, but they didn't live next to each other anymore. You had a few in this city and a few in this city and a few in this city and a few in that city. They didn't live in their homeland. They lived somewhere else. And so Peter takes this word, a word that had been, had been a technical term, and he uses it in a far more general sense for those who are Christians. We see this in, in Hebrews eleven thirteen. the same concept. Uh, there's, there the author is talking about people who have lived beautiful lives, lives that stand out. And he says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not... Re- received the things promised they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance admitting that they were check this out foreigners and strangers on earth and then in philippians three twenty, paul says it in a clearer way but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there the lord jesus christ the idea that peter wants us to understand is that we who are christians We are no longer, in the most real sense, a part of this world. We are no longer citizens of this 
world. We are now citizens of heaven. We have our own history and our own standards and and in some ways our own culture. And we have our own ideas and our own morals. And we have our own king who is God, a different king than this world offers us. And Peter wants to remind us that, that to live beautifully is to recognize that in some ways you are set apart, you are different than the the people that you live next to. Super weird circumstances this week. Um, I am sitting at Starbucks working on this sermon. I think I had just typed the word diaspora, which nobody uses in common language. This is a real, this is gonna sound like I made this story up almost. And next to me, because I just, I don't know, I was at a lull in sermon writing and I was just, you know, needed it take a mental break or whatever. There's a guy who looks to be reading some type of academic paper. It's got like a professor name and a page number in the upper right. And so I'm like, he stopped reading for a second and I say, hey, are you a professor? Because he was older and sorry for me to assume. But uh, he said, no, I'm a student. And I said, he said, this is my thesis. I said, what are you writing on? And he, he starts talking for, and this is what happens, I think, when people are writing thesis because thesi, uh, thesi, anyway, you know what I mean, a, a multiple thesis. Um, and he, uh, because when you're writing, you know, 100 pages on one subject and it's taking your whole life, then you need an outlet sometimes, I think. So he starts talking for like 10 minutes without stopping one bit. And it's the craziest thing because he is talking about, and he uses this word four times, he is talking about African-American as diaspora in the, in the United States and how that ought to look for their culture and for how they interact with white people. And I'm like, what? You can't say diaspora when I just typed it. Like, that's too much of a coincidence. And let me just, just because it was so fascinating to me, it was so weird and interesting Let me tell you just kind of the two viewpoints that he gave me, and he said a bunch of authors and assumed I knew who they were, but I didn't most of the time. But uh, two viewpoints uh, that have have gone, that go back, if you go back uh, 50, 60, 70, 80 years in African-American culture, there was one viewpoint that said African-Americans, if they're going to fit in in America and they're going to be accepted by white people, need to start to look exactly like white people do. That was one of the theories. They need to give up, and this would have been so sad if they would have taken this wholeheartedly. They need to give up doing jazz music and blues music, and they need to start eating like white people, and, and they just need to look exactly like white people, and then white people will like them. And then there was this other theory that, that you just kind of live the same, uh, and, and you just keep being you, and hopefully, eventually, people will accept you for who you are. And it's so weird because when you talk about this idea of being in exile as a Christian, there are two lines of thought that seem to always pop up or two, uh, two ways that people live this out. Some people say, well, I live here and I know I'm in exile there, but I'm going to just try to look like the world, you know? And then other people on this other side, they just are weird and foreign and odd and different. And they, they like super Christians. You've probably met them before. Uh, you know, they're the homeschool kids. And uh, don't repeat that I said that either. And if you're homeschooled, I have Brandon's homeschooled. He plays music. You barely can tell anymore. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> And there's like that, you know, like I just won't look anything like this world. But I think in this word exiles, we find uh, this, this, this kind of middle, like where we don't look exactly like people anymore. 
but we recognize our own culture and our own morals and that our history is different than just American history because we, we now subscribe to the history of God and what God has done in the world forever and ever and, and we have our own beliefs and we have our own ways of thinking and our own frame of, sort of references and, and we have ways that we live that are different but we remember that we still live in this world and that we ought to be not aliens like green Martians, but exiles who respect the culture in which we live as far as we can and, and, and is morally acceptable, but we are different because we have our own culture and our own heritage. And I think what Peter wants us to see is, yes, we live in an ugly world. And to live beautifully does not mean that we come into that ugly world and start yelling at people and saying, you're all wrong, you're idiots, and look, we, you should just do it like us. But to live beautifully is to go, hey, we're here with you. We'll be a part of your culture as far as we morally can, but we will not give up our standards and our morals and our heritage and our beliefs and the things that we subscribe to and what God has told us and all of that. If you're gonna live beautifully, let's just be honest here, then you can't have the same frame of reference, the same morals, the same ideas as the rest of the world, right? You can't, you can't just duplicate ugliness and expect it to be more beautiful. But when Peter says that we are exiles, he reminds us, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. You have a different heritage, and this is what gives you a chance to live beautifully. I, I just, just popped into my head, we'll say it, see how it goes, but, but it's like, if you grew up with just American food, you would never knew, know that you could have Mexican food, you know? Like if you had just had roast beef your whole life, then, then you would never be able to go like, I could cook better than this American heritage. But once you've tasted, I think that's even said in Peter, once you've tasted how good chips and salsa and burritos and tacos and all of that can be, then all of a sudden you have a chance to infuse the ugly culture of roast beef to mix metaphors, with something that is better. And as Christians, we come into a family, a country, a citizenship that is different than the ugly world in which we live. And so we now have the ability to see how ugly the world can be in a new way and to live above and beyond that. I think that's what Peter wants us to hear. He continues, he repeats even, that we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now foreknowledge is another word that has tons of theological baggage. Uh, it's a word that, that people argue about as they argue about election. And, and again, to do so completely misses the point, the intent of what Peter is getting at. This idea of foreknowledge is just to, to know before and knowledge in Jewish culture, knowledge came to be a word that meant not just knowing about somebody, but knowing somebody intimately. And so it became a word that was used for intimacy within a relationship. And the idea here is that before the world existed, before you were even born, if you were a Christian, you can know that God has cared about you, that he has loved you, that he has wanted a relationship with you, that you have mattered to him, that he has wanted you to be on his side and his team forever, forever in our standards, by our standards. 
And so the idea of foreknowledge uh, in its core is to say, look, even before you were born, God cared about you and he loved you and he wanted a relationship with you. Jeremiah 1.5 says this, before I was formed, excuse me, before this is God talking to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. He's not saying to Jeremiah, I knew what you would do. He's saying, I cared about you. I loved you. You were important to me. You were valuable to me. I knew you. I knew you. Before the world was formed, you were known and loved by a, notice who, who was doing the foreknowing here. It's God. You were known and loved by a heavenly father. Matthew 7, 22 and 23, Jesus is talking to people who, who aren't Christians and he says, I never knew you. Does that mean that Jesus didn't know about them, what their lives were about? No, it means, it means that he didn't have an intimate relationship with them. And then John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my own. The cool part, the cool part about being a Christian is that we have a relationship with God where he knows us intimately and in that knowledge, he has set us apart to live beautiful, beautiful lives. And that's the next thing that is actually said, that we have been sanctified or set apart. We are called to be different than the world in which we live. In Peter's first sermon, in Acts 1-9, the very first thing that's recorded that Peter says after Jesus has been resurrected and goes up into heaven, he says, he did not discriminate between us and them for he purified, same word, their hearts by faith. He set apart our hearts by faith. Peter's like a broken record on this issue. If you're a Christian, then you have been set apart for a purpose and that purpose is the glory of God. Christians, this is, this is what's so cool. If you're not set apart, then you can't live beautifully in an ugly world. If you're just in the midst of it and you're part of it and it's normal to you, then you can't live a beautiful life. But once you see yourself as having a bigger purpose, once you see yourself as different than the rest of the world, once you see yourself as being part of a new family, then all of a sudden, you can live different than the culture that you're in. You can live more beautifully than the culture you're in. That's what Peter wants us to know. I think that's the setup for the whole sermon series. It is impossible, it is impossible to live above your circumstances if you haven't been taken out of those circumstances. I did homeless ministry for a couple of years and I know that homeless people, uh, for people that haven't worked with them are often seen as just, they do drugs, right? And, and that's just who they are and everybody's a drunk or doing drugs. But what we found when we did that homeless ministry is that uh, there were a, a high percentage, higher percentage than the average, you know, American normal numbers of, of drug users. But even more what we saw is that these people had been parts of families where they had never learned that there was a better way to do life. They weren't on time. They didn't know how to be respectful. They didn't know how to communicate the way that kind of the normal person communicates. They just, most of them could not see that there was something different for themselves because they had come out of families that had demonstrated the same thing over and over and over again. And what Peter wants us to know is that we live in an ugly world 
And if we are just a part of that ugly world, we will continue to live in the same ugly way or at best, we will just do a a decent job of getting to average. But when we are set apart by the work of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives, then we can see the ugliness for what it is and we can live more beautifully. What's really cool, and I like this, as we read First Peter and, and Peter's writing to this group of people specifically, these people, this, these people in Asia Minor, they live so beautifully that eventually culture actually changes and culture becomes more beautiful because people look around and go, well, you're doing this better than me. This, this is better. I like this better. And people start to see that there can be a different normal. And I think it is Christian's job, a Christian's job uh, to live so beautifully that people start to see that there can be a different normal. And it happens as we recognize that we are set apart. It is not our job to fit in. It is our job to be completely and utterly different as far as beauty goes in our world. And then this other thing that he says is so cool. He says that, that we have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. And we all know that, that first of all, uh, we all do bad things. And when we talk about living beautifully, it doesn't mean living perfectly because none of us will do that. And we always have the forgiveness of sins that is represented in the blood of Jesus. If you go to the Old Testament, you'll see three ways that, that the sprinkling of blood was used. And they're so fascinating to me because they, in some way, they all call us to more beautiful lives. In Exodus 24, 8, it's connected to God making a covenant with the Israelite people and the people making a covenant with God. So God says, you'll be my people. And they say, cool, we'll be your people and we'll be obedient to you. And then they get blood sprinkled on them. Weird, I know, but that's what happens. In Exodus 29, 21, it's connected to the ordination of the priests, Aaron and his sons. And in the next chapter of Peter, we'll see that all Christians are called to be priests. In Leviticus 14, six through seven, it's connected to the purification of the leper who has been healed from leprosy. And in this, this one kind of word picture, as Peter says, you who are Christians, who are elect, who are called, who have been set apart, who can now see the world as ugly, uh, you have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. And it means, it means that you have been forgiven for sins, you've been purified, that you have been called to be priests, to live fully and holy for God, and that you have been committed, you have come into a committed relationship where God loves and takes care of you, but you become obedient to him. That's what Peter's saying. And what I want you to know is that these are the things that will help you live beautifully. Listen to just this last part and then we're done. Uh, At the end of verse two, he says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. And really what Peter is getting at just in these two verses, what, what we should see, I should say, in these first two b- verses is that beautiful lives are in fact a response to the grace and the peace that come from God giving us salvation. We see that the world is ugly. We want to live beautifully. And the great divide is conquered. It's covered. It's fixed as we recognize and are filled with the grace and the peace that God brings to us when we accept Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. What it all comes down to is that we have a chance to stand out if we are people who recognize that we have been chosen, 
who recognize that we have been set apart, who recognize that we have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus and who are constantly being filled by the grace, the love, the hope, the joy, the forgiveness, the peace that Jesus has brought to us. I'll tell you, we'll go through the series and all the things I'll say in the next nine weeks can matter to every person but they can only truly matter to those people who have given themselves to Jesus and have become elect and sanctified and purified by God. I thought about this. If you think about people that you know who have beautiful lives, just quickly pop a name into your head. They have something in common and you can see it in the way people talk about them. We say things like this, from the time they were young, they were different. We say things like this, oh, they just sensed a calling upon their lives. We say things like this, he refused to accept norms. Or this one, he just has it, you know, he was different, stood out. And oftentimes, when we see beautiful lives, we look at those people and say their advantage is that they were different or they sensed a calling or they accepted norms or they were just naturally different. And what Peter reminds us is that all of us who give our lives to Jesus are different and we're called and we don't have to accept norms except the norm of our citizenship which is in heaven and that we are different. And so therefore, we should be living beautiful lives. If you're a Christian, God has called you. He's uniquely set you apart and he's filled you with fatherly love and the Holy Spirit and forgiveness and grace and peace so that you may live beautifully. And so I say as we begin this series, remember that a beautiful life is driven by a beautiful soul that has been changed by God. And so I hope that all of you will take that uh, offer of salvation, you will accept it, and you will begin this journey as we look at Peter's words on how week two can live beautifully. Uh, Pray with me, please. Lord, I thank you for all that you've given me, God. And a lot of times on Sundays, we pray uh, for you to give us more. Lord, we pray for you to help us be different, to help us do things in a different manner. But Lord, I thank you that this morning we can just look at this passage and remind ourselves, be reminded of all that you have already done for us. Because God, it is, uh, those gifts are the only, only true way that we can live a life that is beautiful. And I pray for anybody that's in front of me who will listen online that's not a Christian. I pray that you'd bring them to you. Uh, so that they can know that they are called and sanctified and and they can understand your love and your grace, God. And I pray for those of us who are Christians that we would remember that we are set apart and that we have been called and we would live our lives accordingly. I ask these things in your holy, wonderful name, amen.